And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. This is Ephesians 2, 1 and 3, the word of our Lord. Well, good to be with you guys. What a treat. I was with you when you had your organizational service and installation and so forth of uh, Ryan, but uh, this is my first time to be out here. Love your facility and uh, love your story and what God's doing here. So a great treat. Could not be more honored to speak on the subject matter that, uh, as Brandon mentioned, I love so much, uh, the topic of discipleship. Uh, it was a, a topic that was given to me. Um, I'm going to be followed next week by the man who is now pastoring uh, Perimeter, uh, Jeff Norris, and uh, he and I compared notes a little bit as to what we would address, and I think this will be a good one-two teaching on, uh, on the subject of discipleship. So here, the first thing we have to ask is, uh, what is discipleship? You know, that's a term that's now being used all the time. It's not, a, it's not a scriptural word. You can't go into the Bible and find the word discipleship. Disciple, yes, but no discipleship. And so uh, really what we mean by it is whatever we choose to mean by it because it's not a biblical term. We have to kind of figure out what do we think it means. Now, I'm going to suggest, this is my view of discipleship, discipleship is anything that God uses in our lives to enable us to help someone become a Christian, and that I call making disciples, as the Scripture would talk about making disciples. And then I'll use the term training disciples, equipping a disciples, helping disciples grow in their faith, whatever. So it doesn't matter what it is. I'm preaching the Word of God now. That's discipleship. Uh, you go to a class. That's discipleship. If God's truth is being declared. So every aspect is discipleship. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to take the subject matter of the training disciples. Not making disciples, but training disciples. Now I would just as soon be talking that side. I love that aspect of it. But my assignment is to deal with the training of disciples. And in doing so, I'm going to give you a definition of what I call Life-on-life life discipleship. It may be a term you've heard before. It's something we've been using for years around perimeter. Life-on-life life discipleship. And here's what it says. You can see it on the screen. Life-on-life life discipleship training is the process of laboring in the lives of a few. Listen to that. Laboring in the lives of a few with the intention of imparting one's life and God's Word. Not just God's Word but one's life and God's Word in such a way as to see them become mature and equipped followers of Christ, committed to doing the same in the lives of others. Now, why discipleship life on life? Let me give you a story, true story. A man called me, said, I'd like to meet with you. I'm a friend of such and such, and I've heard about this, that, and the other, and what you do with men and helping men and so forth, and I'm in need right now. Would you meet with me? Find out he is... This incredible golfer, he's a professional, he's a professional golf teacher. This guy knows the game of golf, and I know that. Well, I play golf. 
That was interesting. I thought, well, I'll enjoy also talking to him perhaps about golf. So we started our time off together, and I said, what can I do for you? He said, well, I've got, a, I've got some problems in my life that I need some help with. I said, what is that? He said, well, I want to begin by saying this. I'm a really good man. I hope you'll understand this. Even after what you hear me say, I want you to know I'm a good man. I'm, uh, I happen to be Roman Catholic. I happen to uh, you know, pr- pursue Catholicism, da-da-da-da-da. I try to live a good life and so forth. But you need to know I am an alcoholic, and I cannot stop drinking. I've tried it all. Nothing seems to, I just cannot stop drinking. I don't want you to get me wrong. I'm a good man. Okay. I'm ready now to maybe address the subject of alcoholism, assuming that's what he wants to talk about. But he says, and I'm having this affair right now with a woman. I have a wonderful wife. I have uh, two fine children, a good family. She has no idea about about what I'm doing now, but this lady that I'm meeting with, she's, she's got me wrapped up. I can't get loose. I just can't do it. I've tried and tried. I can't do it, but I don't want you to get me wrong. I am a good man, okay? Assuming that's all it is, he says, and, and after he went through his litany of issues in his life, he ended by saying, but again, I want you to know I am a good man. So I said, well, you know the game of golf, better than most people in the world. I said, is it true or false? Tell me. It doesn't matter if you know anything about golf or not, but this is what I've always understood, and I ask him as a top professional in the field. I said, is it true that if you have a perfect grip on the club, and you have a perfect posture, and you have your alignment perfect to the target, and you know nothing else about the game of golf, and you practice and practice and practice, that if you keep those three perfectly through the golf swing from beginning to end and know nothing else, you would become a good golfer. He said, absolutely the truth. I said, is the reverse true? That if you had a terrible grip, posture and alignment, and you practice and practice and practice, and knew all you could know about golf, the swing itself, but had those three wrong all the time, you would never become a decent golfer. He said, it would never happen, never be a good golfer. I said to him, do you realize that life has a grip, posture, and alignment? He said, no, what do you mean? I said, well, the, the grip has to do with your view of yourself. Your posture has to do with your view of God, and your alignment has to do with your view of the world in which we live. Now, is it true as a professional golfer as you are, and and, uh, or teacher, that uh, if I were to show you my grip, my posture, and my alignment, that you would be able to tell me, well, it's not quite right, or it's very good, or you could analyze it, and I would probably be able to believe you that you're probably pretty accurate as a professional, right? He said, oh yeah, yeah. I said, well, did you know that there is a grip posture alignment in life? And when I explained that to him, and there were these three and so forth, I said, I could give you a little diagnostic if you'd like. I could look at your grip posture alignment and I could maybe focus on whether you've got a good one or not. Because I know you're practicing hard in the game of life but you don't seem to be getting better from what you say. And he said, well, yeah. 
And I said, well, let's take the, let's take the grip. Uh, the grip is your view of self. I said, I'm going to give you four options. A, man is good. Man being you, me, everybody, mankind, man is good. B, man is good with a little bad. C, man is bad with a little good. Or D, man is bad. What would you think? Which would you pick? He said, well, I would say man is good with a little bad. I said, well, I hate to tell you, but you've got a terrible grip. He said, what? I said, yeah, that's not the right answer. Now, according to the Bible, according to the Word of God, which is where I've been trained, what I believe with all my heart, and you've come to me for a reason, and I'm going to tell you that I say you've got a bad grip. I said, how about you want to go through your posture and alignment? I went through view of God, four options, missed them. Got the wrong one. I said, what about the next one? He missed it. I said, you got the wrong one. I said, you know, do you realize that you've got a terrible grip posture alignment? You're practicing as hard as you can practice, and you're so confused why you're not getting any better. You would have to change your grip posture and alignment. Would you like to start meeting and talking about how to change those three? He said, he said yeah, I would. He ended up coming into my discipleship group. Everything I know it now, I moved out of Atlanta. But uh, what I understand, he's... Uh, he's still married and everything, you know, I don't know. But the point is this, folks. Grip, posture, and alignment. The truth of it is, the essence of good discipleship training, you hear this, the essence of good discipleship training is coaching Christians. Hear that? Coaching Christians, not telling them, but coaching Christians how to have a good grip, posture, and alignment. The right view of self, the right view of God, and the right view of the world in which we live. Today what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus for a few minutes on the grip. All I'll have time, I'd love to go through everything, but we're just going to talk for a few minutes about the grip and how it's going to impact the way you're going to be discipled and the way you're going to disciple others, Lord willing. Now, the focus will help us understand why discipleship is so effective when life on life, as I'll use that term, one life on another life, one life coaching another co another life, working together. And that's as opposed to, as opposed to merely having constant exposure to good sermons, good classes, good seminars, good conferences, good small groups, good, 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 what all, all of those are discipleship. But why is it that this life on life has such an incredible impact? So in order to do that, I want to touch on the scriptures that have already been read to you, that Brandon read. Ephesians 2.1, it reads like this, first verse, and you were dead, key word, dead in your trespasses and your sins. Dead. He's referring to all of the believers that are reading his letter. And he says, you all once were non-believers. In the state of unbelief, not intellectual belief, maybe you had heard of Jesus and believed him, but your, your heart was not given to him. You were not a Christian. You've not been transformed by the Spirit of God. You were dead in your sins. Dead. What does a dead man do for himself? Nothing. He is dead. Some people are dead at just the moment they die. They're young. They look very nice. They look uh, maybe asleep. You can't even tell. 
This person has been dead for a few months, found in the woods, and you see that person decayed and rotten and smelly and all, and you look at the two and ask the question, which one is most dead? Well, they're equally dead. Just some are decayed more than the others. There's the point of the Christian faith. Well, some of us are moralistic. Some of us are religious, even religious in the Christian faith. But we can be dead in our sins. I do believe it is the most neglected truth of all Scripture carrying the most serious consequences. If we don't get this, that we were dead. We'll deal with people who are dead the wrong way. We'll do all kinds of things to shock them to life, to bring them back. No, 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 no. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. And you and I are described by that at some point prior to becoming a Christian, okay? But then it goes on to say in verses 2 and 3, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, keep that word in mind, according to the prince, I think this is devil, same thing, of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived, past tense, before we were Christian, in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You can read that scripture text, and you can easily assume, oh yeah, that's the way I used to be. Those are not issues anymore at all. World, devil, and flesh. Now let's be honest, Christian. How many of us would say, you know, now that I'm a Christian, those aren't issues for me. I'm perfectly fine now. But oh, how bad it was when I used to have to worry about those horrible things such as the world out there. I don't even take notice of that world anymore. It's not attractive. I don't care about it. And the devil, now he doesn't care about me because you know what? I'm not his anymore. And the flesh, oh, I don't have any sin nature left in me. I'm now, I got it together. I'm good. Well, please know this. We may assume that those formidable enemies are no longer our great, great challenge to righteousness, but they are. And anybody that understands the Christian faith, I think, assumes that those are issues for us to face. So the reality is, I like to think of it as an addiction. Every Christian, every Christian is a recovering addict. We're sin addicts. I want you to think about the fact that we're sin addicts. Now, we have the power to fight our addiction, that's true. But we're without hope of eradicating the battle, the sin that we experience until Christ comes in glory. We can defeat sin after sin after sin, but we cannot defeat the sin nature in total. It's just not going to happen, meaning we can't eradicate it. It's a part of life until we go to glory. So let me use an analogy uh, about uh, one's battle with alcohol. Um, let's, uh, well, let me first say, I, we ha have a, a loved one that, that uh, uh, from past time that was, a, uh, was a, uh, an alcoholic, uh, was in a, such a condition that had to go off to, to a, a, a treatment facility. And because of us being close friends and, and uh, not relatives in terms of our children or anybody like this, but somebody that was close to us, 
uh, they invited uh, Carol and me to be a part of the exit training and so forth of this person leaving an addiction facility. So we go up and we experience a day in the life of their recovery and what they're doing, this, that, and the other. And whoever would come by and see you on the campus grounds there where they were, they'd walk up and they were so kind and polite. They'd say, hi, I'm Joey. I'm a sin addict. And I'd say, well, hi, I'm Randy. I'm a pastor. I don't know. What am I? Uh, and then the next person, hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm a sin addict. And then they, they have a, a lecture get up, a doctor who says, hey, I've, I'm Dr. So-and-so. I am a, I am a uh, alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. Everybody said they're alcoholic. And I, and I heard that and I thought, wow. This one doctor I remember had been free from alcohol for I don't know how many decades, but he introduced himself saying, hi, I'm an alcoholic. And I thought, boy, is that not the lesson to be learned by us in the Christian church? Hi, I'm Randy. I'm a sin addict. Oh, I'm recovering. Yeah, I haven't had the drink in a long time, but, but let me tell you, if I don't understand my condition, I'm in big trouble. I think that people in the realm of discipleship don't understand what we're really dealing with. We're dealing with addiction. And addiction does not find itself removed by reading books, understanding knowledge, having an understanding of the addiction. That's important. But you watch, it takes something more than that. So imagine, if I can follow up on that same idea, imagine that you have a friend that you see something going awry. Something's not right. They're different than they've been. Something's going on. And you have this hunch that they perhaps may be dealing with alcohol, an addiction. And so in your love for them and your close relationship, you say, I'm going to broach the subject. It could be offensive, but I'm going to say, look, are, let me ask you a question. Are you an alcoholic? And their response is to say, what in the world? How can you even think, no, I'm not an alcoholic. Oh, I drink a little bit too much from time to time, and I get inebriated here and there, but you know, let me tell you, no, I don't have to drink. I can stop anytime I want. I am not an alcoholic. So how can we help that person? Can we help them? No, you can't help that person. We'll take it a step further. Maybe they finally come to the place, their life is unraveling, they realize they need help. They say, okay, look, I, I have to come to you and I have to admit something. I am an alcoholic. I am. I know I am. I admit it. I am. But I can tell you this, I'm never taking a drink again for the rest of my life. I'm through. It's the past. It's over now. Now, let's say you have to bet all the money that you have in life that this person will or will not drink again an alcoholic who's now pledged, I will never drink again, where would you place your bet? I know where you'd place it, where I would. I would be, no, you will drink again. There's a chance, no, maybe, maybe. But let me tell you, the, the overwhelming evidence and the odds, you're going to drink again. So let's say that, that they, uh, they do, and they, they drink again, and they come to you so distraught as a counselor, almost like a friend. They say, look, I've got to have help. What do I do? How do I get out of this mess? What would you tell them? You know what I would tell them? I'd tell them you need to go to a treatment center. You need to get what they can offer you there. So they go to the treatment center. 
They come out three, four, five months later. You're the first phone call they make. And they say, look, I'm free from alcohol. I have, this is weird. I don't even have a desire for alcohol. The thought of drinking is just, I don't know. I, I, I can't ever imagine myself ever, 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 ever drinking again. Now, you have to bet your money one more time. Where do you think you're going to put your bet? Well, if you just say, I'm going to do it statistically, what's the chances that that person is going to drink again? They're extremely high. Extremely high. They're going to fall back in their addiction. And you would bet against that ever happening. You know what we've talked about? We've talked about denial. Can't go anywhere when you deny your sin. We've talked about the idea of willpower and effort. That's not going to... That's not going to beat our sin addictions. We've even talked about cleansing. Cleansing. And by the way, this is no more than an analogy of the Christian and their faith walk. We can't deny our sin. We cannot ever come to the place as Christians and say, you know what, I can do it. I, am, I will do it. Willpower, it'll work. No, it takes God's power. We've got to say we have to have cleansing. So question, I won't ask you to answer it out loud, but just think of your answer. Where do we send somebody to get cleansing? And when I offer that as an answer to respond, I overwhelmingly hear the church. And that's okay. I understand what they're saying, but it's really not the church. You might best find that at church, but it's the cross that the church points to. That's where you and I find cleansing. It's at the cross of Jesus Christ. It is only at the cross of Jesus Christ. It will happen nowhere else but the cross of Jesus Christ. But just because you've been saved, you have been cleansed. Are you fully cleansed or partially cleansed when Christ comes into your heart? Fully. So what's the problem? The problem is this. We still have the roots of our addiction still a part of us. And so that's where we come to Romans chapter 6 and 7. I'm going to touch on this very, very quickly. But I want you to get the overarching picture here. This is the Apostle Paul who's writing the text. To me, it's the greatest book of all the Bible. For me, in terms of helpful to people, to me, to others, I just love the book of Romans. I focus just one quick minute on one verse in chapter 6 and then a number of verses in 7. If you have your Bibles, it's Romans 6, verse 6. One of the most misunderstood texts. It goes like this. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Okay, what's that mean? Without going into great detail, understand these two terms, old self and body of sin. Let's read it again. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. What is the old self? Most people, if I ask the question in a Christian church like ours here, a very well-knowledgeable church, we, most of us would probably get the wrong answer. We say, oh, the, the old self, that's the, that's the sin nature. No, it's not. 
It's not the sin nature. You know what the old self is? The old self is Randy before he became a Christian. It's Brandon before he became a Christian. It's Ryan before he became a Christian. Or Brian before he became a Christian. It's, it's any of us who are Christians. He says, look, no, this, this old self crucified. I mean crucified with Christ. That's why we can be cleansed because of his work. We've been crucified with him. In order that our body of sin might be done away with. Now, what is the body of sin? There's your sin nature. That's the nature of sin. So that that sin nature could be done away with. It's a terrible translation. In fact, in most good translations, do they have any, any study Bible apparatus or anything in it? You look it up the words and you'll see, uh, it'll say, actually, comma, and then it'll tell you what it really means. And it means rendered powerless. I never understood why they just put rendered powerless there, but they, they put done away with. And so Christians kind of live with the assumption, okay, the nature, I've been cleansed. Whew, I'm good now. But my, my addiction, it's dealt with now. No, it's not. It's been paid for. It's been given the provision of power. I wish every church I go to, you're the first exception, and I don't know when, and I don't preach on how to appropriate the power of God's Spirit because that's what everyone is missing. We're not understanding appropriating the power of God's Spirit. But let me tell you, we have to do that because we've got an old nature that resides within us, and there is a battle. And if you don't believe there's a battle, then all you do is go to chapter 7. So if you turn with me to chapter 7... I'll dip in at verse 14. There's been so many verses that would be wonderful to teach. Time doesn't permit it. But in 14, it says this. Apostle Paul speaking of his own situation. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh. He's not saying he's just of skin and bone. He's saying I'm of flesh. I'm of old nature, of, 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 of sin nature. Sold into bondage to sin. He's not talking about before he became a Christian. There's some people that interpret the text such. It's not. He's telling his story right now. He says, for what I am doing now, what I'm doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I'd like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing that I don't want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. And the word sin there, in the original language, will have an article or not. This one is the sin, meaning the nature of sin. It says, because it's this sin nature that dwells in me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. So there's nothing good in that fleshly nature, not at all. For the willing is present in me, because Christ has done something in his heart. Yes, there is a, there's a willing desire to follow him. But the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but the sin nature which dwells in me. Then he says, I find then that the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Now he does end it by saying, how do I get out of this? Praise be to God, it's through Jesus Christ. There's no doubt about that. But he's saying there is an ongoing struggle that just does not end. This side of glory. That is our condition. So what is needed after we've been cleansed at the cross of Jesus Christ? What is it that is needed? How are we going to fight this world, flesh, and devil? Well, 
I'm going to say appropriate the power of the Holy Spirit. Got to understand that. If I ever come back here, I promise you that's what I'll preach on unless I'm told to preach on something different. Because everybody's got to understand that. But ideally, what we need is life-on-life discipleship. It's what Jesus did. It's the model that he left us. It's what Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. He says, having so fine an affection for you, you were well pleased. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but also our own lives, because you have become very dear to us. Oh, I gave you the gospel. I gave you the truth. The gospel is the good news of God. But he says, I did more than that. I offered something more. I gave you my life. What do you mean? He labored among them in such a way. The truth transforms us. John 8, 32. You know the truth. The truth sets you free. But how we get that truth is critical. Sometimes we can simply get it like you're getting it right now. There's a great advantage. But nothing like somebody taking that which you've heard, what you've understood, what you've learned, and massaging it into your life where you understand it and you can use it. I remember being with Peter Drucker, young people, you won't know his name. He's been deceased for years. Peter Drucker was uh, known as the grandfather of modern-day management. Uh, I mean, we're talking a Renaissance man like you've never met, one of the most brilliant, amazing people, somebody that everybody would pay thousands of dollars to get an hour alone just hearing him talk. Unbelievable man. I had the privilege of being with a small group of pastors that spent uh, several days with this man. And I just sat there awed. I went, how does he speak such an incredible depth? How does he understand so much? How does he know so much? I'll never forget something he said. He said, I've worked with every kind of organization you can imagine. For profit, not for profit. Religious, non-religious. And he says, of all the organizations that I've ever worked with, I've only seen two organizations that actually worked. And he mentioned the two. And one of the two, one of the two was AA. AA. Alcoholics Anonymous. And he went on to describe why it worked. He says, here's why it worked. It had the two magic bullets, a part of it, or it has it. What is that? He says, one, it has an accountable group. And number two, it has a qualified sponsor. He said, you get a sponsor, life on life. You get an accountable group, life on life. That's how they get out of their addictions. And I heard that, and I said, That's exactly the way it is in the church. So I want to wrap this up, but I want to tell you quickly the story at Perimeter Church so you understand why you've maybe got the roots that you have. You see, our church was not a great church because we grew fast. You know, because somebody grows fast as a body, as an individual person, is not because they're, doesn't, doesn't mean anything if they grow fast or big or whatever. It's are they healthy. But something happened to make our church healthy. And just to tell it in brief, it was just a few years in the life of the church. Seven, eight years, we're growing, everybody's bragging about perimeter and what it's doing and how fast and all the conversions, all that. But I said, something's missing. And I went away. 
I spent days alone with the Lord, and I just begged him, tell me what is wrong. Something's missing in our church. I know it is. I know it is. I know it is. And I had this picture. I had this picture of me drawing a bow and arrow. I don't understand. Drawing the arrow in a big room like this, turning my head away from the wall over there, letting the, the arrow fly, hitting the wall, grabbing a magic marker, running over the wall, taking where that arrow landed and drawing a very perfect circle around it, and then getting back and celebrating what a great job I did in shooting the target right in the center. What a great archer I am. He said, no, 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 you got to have the target first. Well, I said, we don't have a target. And long story short, I said, okay, the target is making mature and equipped followers of Christ. I believe that with all my heart. Mature and equipped. And when I understood, I said, I'm going to make a description of what the mature and equipped follower of Christ was. And I, and I made the description. As, uh, somebody lives under the control of the Holy Spirit. They uh, live under the direction of the Word of God. They're motivated by the love of Christ. You know, they're, they, they share their faith. They're socially responsible. They're this, that, and the other. And I had a whole list of things. And I said, this, I think, is fairly biblical of what a mature and equipped follower would look like. I'll put it this way. If any of these you didn't have in your life, you wouldn't be a mature and equipped follower. And I took that and I said, now how many people at Perimeter Church meet that description? And I thought, we have some, but it's woefully low. I said, that's the problem. There needs to be people coming mature and equipped. I mean, great followers of Christ that are reproducing in the lives of others and so forth. I went back to the elders and I said, guys, I've, I've got to share with you. Our church is not where we need to be. And I explained why. They said, how do we get there? I said, I don't know. I never could figure out the answer. They said, well, whatever it takes, we give you the time, resources, go find the answer. And I looked and looked and I couldn't find, what was the church doing any different than we're doing? That makes it any, I didn't see anybody stronger making more mature and equipped followers of Christ. But I said, this isn't right, something's wrong. And so with the staff gathered together and talking about this again, we said, we got to figure it out. Does anybody know how? And somebody said, I got an idea. Let's put a big board up here and let's put up the names of every man and woman in our church that we can think of that meets this description that we're using of a mature and equipped follower of Christ. As right or wrong as it may be, let's use it. How many people meet it? We put up dozens of names, men and women alike. But such a small percentage of a church that was now fairly large. And I'll never forget one of the guys said, whoa, 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 I see something. I said, what is that? I, I, I see something. Look at, the, look at the men on that list. And I looked at the men and I said, well, what about them? I said, look how many of them have been in your small group, Randy. We were known as a great small group church. But I was not excited about small groups. They weren't, they weren't leading people to Jesus through them. They weren't getting equipped to, you know, become a tour and equipped. Like I thought, I said, they were wonderful. Small groups are great. But I thought something is missing. They said, are you doing anything differently in your group than we're doing in our groups? And I said, I am. What are you doing? And I gave them the outline of what we were doing. And in my group, I was taking people coming out of moral messes, relational messes. They weren't the cream of the crop. And they were becoming our elders and deacons and leaders in the church. They said, what are you doing? And I said, you know, I walked through a, a sequence of things I do in my small group that's different. And that is, I make them discover the truth on their own as best as I can. They read on their own. They have an assignment. They read about it. They think about it, the, the scriptures. And then I spend my time doing four things. After the truth, I equip them. What do you mean? Well, I massage the truth until it becomes understandable and usable. What do you mean by that? Well, I, I actually 
ask them questions, ask them to ask me questions, and I uh, find out do they understand, and do they this, and do they that, and and, and then after I've got that, I, I go a step further. I give them, I give them uh, um, uh, accountability. I don't mean behaviorism. I mean asking the question. Let's find the sin beneath the sin in your life. Let's try to figure that out and help them walk through what's going on in their heart and life. And then I get them engaged in mission. And the mission is the, the key. to Get them exercised in their faith, where they're sharing their faith in their own personality, in their own way, however that may be. But they live to, to win a lost world. And then prayer, helping them pray together and understand that and so forth. Well, we decided let's do that in the life of our groups. Not all of them, because we had people that were just in good care, sharing prayer groups, that's fine. But people that wanted to do the, let's go, let's go in the faith, let's go. And oh my goodness, how it started impacting lives. They said, well, how, how did you know to do that? And I said, because when I became a believer, a Christian man entered in my life, and he said, would you like to be discipled? I had no clue what that meant. And he said, here's how you do it. And that's what he did with me. And I started doing it with other people. And I found out it made all the difference in the world. Ken Blanchard, many of you know his name, but wouldn't know his name, but a tremendous author and great Christian leader now and uh, made who knows how many companies that, that went on to incredible success. Somebody asked him the question. I was in the group. They said, how is it that everything is so successful in what you do? And he used the same quadrants that I had been using, truth, equipping, accountability, mission, prayer, supplication. Makes a little acronym teams. And he says, oh, it's simple. You bring in anybody that you're working with. Every book I wrote was about around this. He said, you bring him into quadrant one. He had a big box. He had an X. And now this first box, if you're looking at it here, I'll put you over in the box number one, two, three, and four. And he says, over here, you, you, you basically give them directives. But you don't do that long. Then you take them up into this box. You coach them. You coach them. You give them an opportunity to see you do it and hear about it and ask you questions. You ask them questions. It's like coaching in golf or tennis or ballet or anything. You've got a coach that they're working with you. Then, after a time, you take them over to support. And the support is, is just somebody close enough to deal with the new issues that come up rarely and so forth. And then you put them to delegate, and you say, now you're on your own. Go at it. And I realized that was the same as truth, equipping, accountability, and mission. We had prayer in the middle and said, that's exactly what we've been doing. And watching life change, as you cannot imagine. And so, with that, I close. Folks, this applies to every area you could be equipped in. You want to be equipped in how to suffer? Get it life on life. Read your books, great. But get some life on life. You need to understand soteriology, Christology, go to life on life. Personal worship, life on life. I cannot tell you how valuable. I would say this. If the elders of our church had ever come to me and said, Randy, Either you got to give up your laboring in the lives of a few. Or you have to quit being the pastor of this church. I assure you without any doubt, I would leave the church so I could disciple. There's a reason that for about to start my 55th year 
of consecutively having a group of people to labor in their lives. I had a few years before that of somebody laboring in my life. And there can be nothing that could be more important. Treatment center, absolutely. Walk in the spirit, of course. Other means of discipleship, certainly. But I'm convinced the model of Jesus is where you want to go if you want to make impact in lives and have your life impacted. So would you do this? Would you ask the Lord even now, Lord, would you give me someone to disciple me? And I'm going to keep begging and looking for that. Labor in my life. Give me somebody that's further along with me and has some idea of how to take me along in life. Or if you've already come along a little ways, find somebody who is not as far as you and say, Lord, show me who I can labor in their lives. Children, youth, adults, doesn't matter. And make a lifestyle of laboring in lives. And watch how God uses you. Look how God transforms this church. You that leaves this church, make sure this happens. It just keeps happening. And parents, you just got the formula for how to raise children. Truth, equipping, accountability, mission. Give it to them. Watch what happens. Go to the cross. It's where it all begins. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the whole idea of discipleship. And we pray that we might be a, a people here, whether it be in the pulpit, or whether it be life on life, alone with individuals. We pray, use us as a people in this church to be a great, great, great church because we make mature and equip followers of Christ who do the same in other people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>